I just finished a fascinating conversation with uh, Dr. Ann Bradley, who's a professor at the Institute of World, uh, World Politics at, and also at George Mason. Uh, she's got an incredible take on, on the morality of markets and how people can really make themselves happy. And there's a, there's a distinction that needs to be made between agreeing on ends, where I think even with Bernie Sanders, she points out she can agree with him on a lot of good things that, that ought to be accomplished, but there's a big disagreement and a fundamental misunderstanding about how we get there. And what I think you'll learn in this show is that how we get there is the important thing to understand. It's, it's markets, it's rule of law, it's all the bourgeois values that have been so discredited that basically make people happy. Um, Anne's incredibly articulate about this, and I think you'll learn a lot. The other thing you'll learn that I think is really fun is we talked about something else she's been working on, which is the, uh, the economics of Al-Qaeda and what's the supply and demand uh, for the so-called services of Al-Qaeda. I mean, why do people want to go to join it, and, and who on earth is, is funding it? Because these people don't live on nothing. It requires resources to make it happen. And she's got a very interesting take on that that uh, occurs at the end of the show, and I hope you'll stay with me and, uh, and learn about that as well. So let's listen. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Today we're here to talk about a big topic, the moral case for free markets and the path to human flourishing. And joining me to help us understand that topic is Dr. Ann Rathbone, Rathbone Bradley, who's a professor of economics at the Institute of World, uh, World Politics and is an adjunct professor at George Mason University. She's also taught at Georgetown and Charles University in the Prague. Uh, vice president now at uh, Economic Initiatives at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, uh, where she develops a systematic theology of economic freedom. And Anne is also a specialist on the political economy of terrorism with a specific emphasis on industrial organization of Al-Qaeda. She's the author of the most recent, her most recent book is Counting the Cost, Christian's Perspectives on Capitalism. Anne, welcome. Bill, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, great to have you here. Also joining me here is my lovely bride, Sarah Walton, who has an outstanding background as an artist and a designer. She was a uh, art director at the Washingtonian Magazine and Art and Antiques, uh, and she also uh, did early graphics for ABC Nightline, and Sarah is a painter, and she is the painter of the paintings you see behind me and behind all of us, so thank you for that, Sarah. And Sarah is also uh, the family's outstanding moral philosopher, and so that she's here to, to carry the load as we talk about these important issues of making the moral case for free markets. So, Anne, uh, tell us about uh, what you see as, the, as, as a path. Let's get started on the path to human flourishing. Sure. Uh, this is one of my favorite topics. I think that the word flourishing is getting a lot more play today, and I think that's a really good thing. But what's important for us is to understand what does it mean to flourish. Uh, and I think underneath that question is what type of society is required for people to be able to obtain and contribute to human flourishing. 
And that's what we want to talk about. It. And uh, my take as a researcher, as an economist, and as a Christian is that a market-oriented society gives people the widest swath of choices they can have. So the freer they are, the, the happier they are, the more people flourish, and the and, more wealth is created. And we can be exactly who we're supposed to be, right? So only only you and I can figure out what we're destined to do in life. And we need a society that allows us to try and to fail. So while, yes, we're promised more wealth and more freedom, we, we have to be entrepreneurial and we have to live in a society and be willing to take the risks uh, that that requires. And you want people to wake up in the morning and think about how do I make the lives of strangers better? Hmm. That's the world we want to live in. Uh, and I think a, a world of human flourishing uh, uh, under, you know, that is underlied by markets and a, a small but legitimate government is the way to do that. Now, you bring a biblical Christian perspective. I don't think of the Bible much, uh, maybe the Old Testament, which is a pretty good uh, path to, uh, a lot of good guides to business in the Old Testament, but don't think about it much in the new one. What's what's the biblical basis for your uh, thinking? Well, we, when I, when I think about this, I go right to Genesis, uh, and I would encourage people if they're interested in this, to go back and read. Just the first and second chapters, I think, are really helpful. Because in the first chapter, what you see are what are God's desires in his own creation? That's the first question, I think, as Christians we have to ask. And what are, how did he design this created order? And what is our role in it? So the, the answer to the first question is he created the universe for his own glory, and it glorifies him when it flourishes in all the ways that it's supposed to. Uh, and I think if you look at the second chapter, you see how we fit into that, which is that we're created to work. And that means paid work, unpaid work. It means working. Second chapter of Genesis. Of Genesis, yeah. What does that tell us? So it tells us a lot about what we're created to do. It says God put uh, Adam and Eve in the garden to work it and to care for it. Hmm. So we know that our job is to work. And again, that begs a bigger societal question, which is how do we work? How are we able to not just get paid jobs, but to be generous and engage in philanthropy, to help our community, to be involved in our churches, to help mm -hmm. our family? Now, you've, you've been working at this and you've studied the Christian perspective, but what about the other great religions? I mean, certainly they've got a point of view about this. Do we share a common, uh, common purpose towards uh, flourishing with, say, Islam or Hinduism or the other, the other major religions? Well, I'm certainly not an expert on those religions. Um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about the Judeo-Christian foundations of kind of the moral order and what those require. So I can speak to those the best and say that they do. Uh, but what I think is important to say is that, um, you know, Michael Novak said we need to live in a world with cultural pluralism, meaning we can look and think about these other religions. We can look at them and study them and see what is most important uh, for us, for our mm -hmm. moral code. And so, yes, I do think that other religions offer something that we can learn from in terms of how to live in a culturally diverse world, but peacefully amongst each other. And I think there's lessons from all great religions there. Well, day to day, what are the what are the rules for life? I mean, what would my listener take away saying, okay, well, that's great. I'm going to get up every morning and... and Think about flourishing. What does that What does that mean uh, day to day? How, how do, you does, put how that do we practice? Yeah, how do we do practice it? I mean, yeah. So I know, think I mean, this is where theology, for me, and economics really go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, the The one aspect is, uh, if you believe in the the Christian theology of work, then you you know that you have a responsibility to work. You have accountability to that. 
Uh, but I think the economics helps us with the how. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one way I would say is that we have to figure out what our talents and our gifts and our skills are. Um, and each person is unique. We're kind of like snowflakes. There's no uh, two of us ever. Uh, and that's important because it means, for example, I'm an economist, but there's many economists, but I can only do it in the way that I can do it. So I bring something unique to being an economist, to being a professor, to being a writer. Uh, and we all have that opportunity. So I think to really both contribute to flourishing, to live into this theology of work, we have to figure out what is it that I'm supposed to do. Comparative advantage. Comparative advantage. Absolutely. Yeah. A Sarah, lot of Christians in. suggest that every morning you get up and you have a moment of contemplation about God, and then you say, what's your purpose for me today? And I find, I don't remember to do it every day, but if I do, my whole day goes so much better. It takes a lot of burden off, and you can flow. I agree. And I think that what what you said uh, is, is so important because it allows us to go with the flow, to be flexible. Because if you look at, if I look at my own career, and I bet the two of you can say the same thing, it's not linear. It's not I did one thing and the next thing directly flowed from that. It's I was all over the place in my career. And, and I think if you're going to ask God to help you figure out what your purpose is, you're going to have to be willing to go where he asks you to go. And sometimes that's not what you would predict. Yeah, sometimes I think about my career as a pinball machine where you can only... <laughs> figure out uh, how you got where you are by looking backwards, not forwards. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't predict it if you no. wanted to, right? No, you can reverse engineer exactly. it, but you can't look ahead and say, okay, well, this is the path. Right. Well, we're talking about free markets, Christianity, human a- uh, and uh, and people getting up in the morning. You and I talked before we came on about the idea of human agency, and, and, and this is an idea that, that I think should be shared by everyone. It's not just a Christian point of view. Explain what we mean by human agency. I think that's the great, the right way to frame it. It's not just a Christian point of view, and it's not an ideological point of view. It's yeah. that we want a world where people are able to have the broadest array of choices possible. Mm-hmm. And frankly, this is what separates um, us as citizens of the United States from current citizens of Afghanistan. Uh, you know, what what is the real difference. The real difference is I can walk into a grocery store, and in that grocery store, there are hundreds of thousands of miracles. There's cereal choices, and there's a pharmacy, and I have lots of ways to satisfy my choices, and at a very low cost to me. If I'm a citizen of Afghanistan, there's not a grocery store on every corner where I have a hundred different choices of breakfast options available to me. So getting breakfast is very hard for most ordinary people. Well, that that brings up something else we've been talking about, which is sort of the bigger picture of where we are. Uh, We're all, it seems like both the left and the right today complain things are terrible, they're not what they used to be, it's not not America in the 1950s, we don't have good-paying union jobs and pensions, we don't have this or that. Yet the fact is the world has gotten wealthier, healthier, and maybe not wiser in the last 200, 250 years in a way that's unprecedented in history, and that's come from markets. Markets and more human agency. Again, uh, what we want to do is unleash the human creativity of every single person as much as possible, and that is what has allowed us all to become richer uh, and so I, if this is one myth that I could spend the rest of my life trying to dispel and, and have people understand, it's that we are materially better off. And while material well-being isn't everything, it's certainly a lot. Mm-hmm. And it allows us to have other things that we like, right? More time, 
more time to invest in our spirituality, uh, more time to read books, more time to um, engage in our talents. And so I think that people are just wrong on this. The world, as you mentioned, it's remarkable. Even if you look at the progress that has been made in terms of um, income, global income over the last 50 years, the poorest countries today are still better off than they were 50 years ago. And what I think is amazing is that things that you and I take for granted, like the cell phone, are now accessible to some of the poorest people on the planet in places like Ghana and Bangladesh. And that alone, that access, is giving them more agency as human beings. It's allowing them to economize on their time and to do more and well, to have more. Well, you, you, you said... Uh you'd like to be able to have coffee with Bernie Sanders. I did. And you'd explain to Bernie that, uh, <laughs> that, Bernie, we agree with you. We want all these good things, but we don't agree that you're going to achieve them the way you're talking about it. What, That's what right. Do we, what do we mean by that? That's right. Um, I think it's very easy, and I think we need to work on this we, meaning the dialogue and the rhetoric um, in the policy space. We need to stop villainizing based on ideology and say, hey, you know, I agree with you, Bernie Sanders. I, I don't want the poor to be poor, and I don't want the rich to be able to exploit. But the question is the how. And that's where I think he and I would disagree. It's mm -hmm. at the, what is the way to make the poor rich? What is the way to um, disable the rich from being able to use their status to uh, exploit others? And I think those are real concerns that we should have, that we all should have. So he's right about that. But the how is different. To me, what economics shows me, what, what the past 250 years of human history has showed us is that markets empower ordinary people. When you talk about Genesis, we were at a meeting and Star Parker was sort of joking, but she wasn't really. Star Parker is the, uh, the activist, uh, African-American. Yeah. Continue. I'm just. Um, and she said Genesis in the Garden of Eden was God's first defense of free of personal property, private property. What do you mean? What you mean? She meant Adam and Eve didn't pay attention to his private property and took what they wanted. <laughs> and there you go. <laughs> I think she was kidding, but I don't think she really was. <laughs> that was a good, was a good kind story. of tongue in cheek. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we 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 agree on ends, but not not on the how. But what what happened? 700 and, or 1750, 250 years ago that caused things to flourish. Somebody who's definitely not a Christian, Steven Pinker, I think is a pretty avowed atheist. Is that right? I brilliant, think so. brilliant, and brilliant man. Very smart and really looking at interesting questions. And he had a piece in the Wall Street Journal oh, three, four weeks ago that was based on his upcoming book uh, titled The Enlightenment is Working. Mm -hmm. And he gives credit to all the increase in wealth, the, enlight the enlightenment ideas, which allowed people to, I guess he would say, se you know, separate themselves from faith and begin to think in terms of more secular um, solutions. What, what do you what do you think about that? I think that he's right about the ideas of the enlightenment that were so important. And and we have to ask the question is well, I think the first thing we have to say is what were those ideas? And the ideas that we can take um, in part from the Reformation is uh, work and thrift and prudence and savings, right? These ideas that work is good for its own sake and that you should figure out what to do and work hard to care for your family. And I think the additional uh, aspect of those ideas was that people started embracing them 
And when people embrace these ideas, that's how we get social and economic <clears throat> and political change. So I think he's right to say it was a it was a break away from the theocracies that told people what to do and mm -hmm. told people what to think. Yeah. And it was an empowerment of yeah. ordinary people. And what Deirdre McCloskey, one of my favorite contemporary economists, says is what was important about the Enlightenment is that we had equality of dignity. So it was a radical departure from the past in terms of the relationship of the person and the state. Mm -hmm. Before, there was an idea that there was the divine right of kings, right? That I was born into this lot, and I'm an elitist because of that, and if you weren't, too bad for you. Pretty, pretty good deal if you're the king. It's a pretty good deal if you're the king, but if you're the rest of us, it's not a great deal. So what she says is that ordinary people had dignity that was recognized by the state, and now... The sole purpose of the state is to protect that dignity, mm -hmm. that we come to the state with inalienable rights. This is a very new concept mm -hmm. in human history, and it's a revolutionary one because it allows ordinary people to take control over their lives. And the notion of natural rights, as I think this is called, is very consistent with Christian and biblical views. It is. Yeah. It is. This idea that, again, if we're created by God— what does that imply about our existence? Mm -hmm. Well, we would say we're imago dei, we're made in the image of God, which means that we are creators. We can't create exactly the way God can, right? We can't create something out of nothing, but we can and we're supposed to create something out of something. And the Enlightenment created, not created, but it really revealed this, this notion of many of the virtues that we thought about. I grew up child of the 60s, and of course we were all supposed to hate bourgeois society then, anti-bourgeois, terrible, terrible. We were all countercultural. Well, then, as I've gotten on, I began to love bourgeois virtues. I sort of think they're the key to happiness. We, You're the new counterculture. I'm the new counterculture. Right. We are. <laughs> well, you too. <laughs> but, you know, the, the old-fashioned virtues of thrift, uh, um, you know, a, a, a forbearance, uh, deferred gratification, I don't know, you, you probably get a longer list than I do, are the things that work for people. I think that they're the things that focus us to think about the long run mm -hmm. and to think about the consequences of our actions. So here's a really good kind of modern application of that. We're living a lot longer than we've ever lived before. Angus Deaton won the Nobel Prize two years ago, and he has a great book called The Great Escape, and it's about health and wealth. And he says that the average... Um, Female born in the United States, Caucasian female born in the United States in 2015 has a 50-50 chance of living to 100. Wow. That's remarkable. But as we live longer, we have to have the long view. We can't squander all the money that's in our savings account. We have to think about the future. So as we live longer, these this ethos of capitalism, these ethics of the Enlightenment become even more important because we have longer to take care of ourselves, to work to care for our family, so we're going to need resources to do that. There was an old comic from the 30s who, uh, I can't remember his name, but he he lived to a great old age, and he said, well, if I'd known I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. <laughs> That's right. So <laughs> we better start taking care of ourselves. We better start, better taking, start care taking care of ourselves. Care of self. Well, yeah, the, the, the life expectancy, I mean, through, through most of human history, continuing the 19th century, uh, a newborn was expected to live about 30 years to be about 30 years old. And uh, I guess now life is expected to live into 71 and develop world to 81. Mm -hmm. So we must be doing something right. We're doing something right. It's exciting. It's an exciting time to be here. Uh, do you, uh, you, uh, you're, uh, 
I want to jump into something. I want to come back to this notion of uh, of how we arrange the economy. Getting back to the Bernie Bernie Sanders question, I mean, we're talking about free markets. Can we drill down a little bit? What does that mean? What are the elements of that that work for countries or don't work for countries? Yeah, I think I love the way you asked the question because I think the answer is we don't arrange economies. Uh, and this is kind of the insight of F.A. Hayek and Milton Friedman, that economies are emergent orders. They come from human exchange on the most uh, individual level. And so I think the big failures of socialism and communism were failures because uh, the planners did not uh, recognize that. They thought that if we put smart people in charge of the economy— uh, that the economy could run just fine, that we could say, you know, you're going to produce steel and you're going to produce bread and we're going to tell you the prices and it's all going to be wonderful. I mean, the ideals of socialism weren't that people were going to the gulag and they certainly weren't that people were going to die of disease and starvation. So I think this is about what we were talking about earlier, which is that there is an explicit path to flourishing that works and the economy has to come from human exchange. Now, there are things we can design. We need a rule of law, right? We need an independent set of courts. We need economic and political freedom. And I think mm -hmm. those are the basic frameworks that allow people to invent, to discover. Uh, and that's what gets us the bread that feeds us and the medicine that cures well, us. Well, I, I think the gist of what he was saying was you, there's, no, there's no one smart person or group of people that can sit in an office in some remote remote place and decide how things ought to be for everyone and that there's you know the totality of human knowledge i think he said is a problem of the utilization of knowledge which is not given to anyone in totality and so having that spread out diffused among people solving their problems locally is, is far better than a centralized planning system which has never worked correct Right. Because the entrepreneurs have to discover things. Even think of the richest entrepreneurs today. Um, you, you know, you think of someone like Bill Gates. I mean, what Bill Gates is accountable to, what he has to figure out, what he has to discover is what co consumers and customers want. And the minute he stops being effective at that discovery process, he won't be a billionaire anymore or, or he won't continue to make that kind of money. And uh, in a market society, that's a good thing because it means as consumers, ordinary people like you and I, we have a lot of say in what entrepreneurs who are, might be very rich people do. So what are the problems with markets? Income inequality? There, there are problems with markets, and this is what we have to remember always. Mar we're always dealing with human beings. Human beings make up markets. They make up governments. They make up churches. Oh, my God. We're dealing with human we're beings. Always, okay. We can't that's, take that's, away that's, the human. Pro that's problematic. It is a problem. <laughs> so I think we have to be careful when we look at things to, to, try, to try to obtain a utopia because I don't think that exists. I don't think, to your question, that income inequality is necessarily a problem. That said, it can be. So it's a very nuanced uh topic. And, and what we really want to focus on are how the people at the top of the income distribution earn their money. Do they earn it in a Bill Gates type of fashion where they've created, they've discovered, they've figured something out that we need and want, and they give it to us through the process of competition? I'm very happy for wealthy people to have their wealth that way because it makes sure that I get a pacemaker if I need one one day and a car with airbags. Be because they've created something that satisfies the wants that and needs of want. lots and lots and lots of people. Again, and there's no coercion in that. It's I choose to buy a Honda minivan if it suits my preferences. And if I don't or I don't like it, 
uh, then Honda needs to change their ways. This is not true if the rich don't have to earn their income. Mm -hmm. And in some societies, this is the way it works, uh, right? Uh, plutocracies and areas where the cronies at the top um, exploit, they use political favoritism, they use bribes to get what they want to ensure their position in the market. And that's a real concern because it, it uh, absolutely ensures that the poor will never become rich. Well, that's something you, when you have your coffee with Bernie Sanders, you need to explain to him <laughs> because there are two types of, well, there are probably more than that, but you, you could break it into, into free market capitalism where people are producing things based on voluntary exchange and, and providing value to other people, which is a fabulous system for creating happiness and wealth, and then cronyism which is where you get entrenched players using the government to say, and these can be not just businesses, it could be any entity that, uh, that, that gets favors from the government. And they, by getting a special uh, favor from the government, it shuts down the creative process, it keeps people out of the market, and things, instead of getting better, stagnate or get worse. That's absolutely right. So we have to look at what are the rules. Yeah. Uh, and in my own opinion, I think that there's something to be concerned about in the United States, which is a place of a lot of economic freedom, a lot of economic growth. There's really good things to celebrate here. But I do worry about the cronyism. I do worry as somebody who works in Washington, D.C., and I drive down K Street every now and then, and I see all the lobbying uh, associations that are permanently affixed on K Street, ready Right. To give over lots. Well, of actually, the U.S. Chamber is on H Street. H Street. H and K, then. H and K. Well, it's a good jobs for ex-senators. Very good jobs. In fact, they, I, I read a statistic that said the average pay increase from being a senator to kind of the afterlife is 1,500 percent. Wow. So that should show us something. Uh, and I think this is where I worry because it, it absolutely blocks the little guy. I mean, think about the mom and pop uh, company that's just starting, they can't afford million-dollar attorneys to set up shop on K Street and pay that rent to protect and advocate for them. So the little guy gets shut out in that environment, and that's something we should worry about. Well, you take a look at, for example, Dodd-Frank, the Jamie Dimon and uh, uh, Lloyd Blankfein run J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs, respectively, were, were boasting to an investor conference several a couple of years ago that Dodd-Frank had... Uh, been so uh, regulatory intense, uh, lawyer intense, that it required a fortune to get into the financial services business, and it had created a moat around their businesses, which kept everybody else out. And That's so right. all the, no, no innovation, they're protected, not a good thing. Not a good thing, because what we can <clears throat> expect always from that are higher consumer prices and lower rates of innovation and lower rates of startups. And yeah. startups are important because it means that pressure of competition is always in play. And in a dynamic economy, that's exactly what you want. Before we switch to the other topic, which would be startups in the terrorism economy. Industry. industry tell me, what's the gist of your new book, your latest book? So this is a book. Uh, it's an and edited the title volume. Is, a title the title is, is Counting the Cost, Christian yeah. Perspectives on Capitalism. Yeah. And what is the cost? And the cost, well, that's what we're trying to measure, is what are the critiques that are brought against capitalism? And we wanted to be very thoughtful in this book and not just be a cheerleader for capitalism, but say, what are the critiques that Christians legitimately and thoughtfully bring to capitalism? And each chapter is an effort to address those critiques. So, for example, 
Does capitalism encourage people to just be materialistic in their worldviews? Does capitalism destroy the environment? Uh, does capitalism um, allow the rich to exploit the poor? And so kind of the way that we positioned the title was to say, what are the real costs of capitalism? Does it, does it destroy the environment? Is that a real cost? Because if it does, we should be concerned about that. Uh, and we wanted to take seriously the concerns that Where can we find have. your book? Where can I find your book? You can find it at our bookstore, which is on uh, tifwe.org. T- and it's there for purchase. Say it once again? T-I-F-W-E.org. Okay. And it's also on Amazon. Okay. Well, that's great. Let's talk about terrorism and the economics of terrorism. Talking with Ann Bradley who has done some work on the industrial organization of Al-Qaeda. I don't think of Al-Qaeda as being an industrial organization, <laughs> but maybe maybe it is. What's, uh, what, what's, what's your take on this? So if I may can give you a little backstory as to how I came to this. It seems like the opposite of human flourishing, right? So maybe that's the segue, is what happens when we don't it's a great flourish. Segue. What kind it's of a great... environment do we have, right? We start Al-Qaeda. And when I was in graduate school, 9-11 happened. Uh, and so at the time... I was, I was a research associate with a professor, Charles Rowley, who wanted economists to have a voice on this issue in the public square because we knew there was going to be a lot of policy that was going to emerge after 9-11, and we were worried that it might not be well thought out. So from that paper with my professor, I ended up doing my entire dissertation on al-Qaeda, and I really took an economist view. Uh, and so here's kind of the summary um, the summary is, what would the economics approach be? And, and here's what it is. The assumptions are that terrorists are rational in the way that everyone else is rational. It doesn't mean they're good. It doesn't mean we like their motives. It doesn't mean we agree with their intentions or their worldview. But it means they're purposeful. And that is an, you know, kind of a fundamental assumption that economists bring to the table when we're looking at human behavior. People weigh costs and benefits. Mm -hmm. So what does Al-Qaeda want? They want to be successful, which means they're going to try to maximize their own benefit, their profit seekers, and they want to minimize the cost. So they're not going to take risks that might destroy them from achieving their own mission. Again, this doesn't mean we have to agree with them, but they have purpose and they behave that way. Now, we've, we've shifted, though, from economic risk to warfare risk or or what kind of risk? Well, any kind of risk. So what, the worst thing that a terrorist group can do is fail publicly. So they go to great lengths to try to succeed, especially, I think what was phenomenal, and I use that word very specifically about Al-Qaeda, was the transnational nature of the attack and how successful it was on such a target that's viewed as an international beacon Mm -hmm. of economic prosperity and freedom. So it was very calculated. And you can imagine all the ways that it could have failed. And so when I was doing my original research, I was really looking at the 9-11 Commission Report, which had been declassified at the time, mm. and gave us a lot of information about the behavior of the group and the actions they, take, they took leading up to 9-11. And what's very interesting, I'll just tell you one little story. If you look at the detainee reports, which is how we get this information, we see that the hijackers that were sent here to you know, fly the planes and get licenses, they were told to get apartments, get a gym membership, have a beer after work, be an American, do things that Americans do. But the uh, leadership of Al-Qaeda did not want them here any earlier or any sooner than was absolutely necessary. And why? They didn't want them. Uh, don't want to step in your punchline. Go no, ahead. No, go ahead. 
They Why? didn't want them to become Americans. Exactly. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> Too much there's, freedom. A, there's a significant cost <laughs> they to... They might decide there's better things to do exactly. than fly a plane into a building. And that's a really <laughs> important point. That was the kind of fundamental point of my whole research project was, if we want less terrorism, it's not just about the defensive measures that we need to take. So securing the airports, doing those things are good and important, but it will never never stop the demand for terrorism. And terrorism operates on a supply-demand curve just like any other thing. So what I really wanted to think about was why do people choose terrorism to achieve their social goals, their religious goals, their political goals, economic goals, whatever the goals are. Why is terrorism seemingly a reasonable choice for some people? And to my, in my view, if we want to stop terrorism, regardless of whether it's Al-Qaeda or some other group, that's what we have to figure out. And it's not a coincidence that the places that are hotbeds for terrorism are places that have very little economic freedom, where people have very little human agency, where people have very few alternatives, and a lack of political freedom. So these things go together. We have to look at the institutional environment in which people live. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to make terrorism go to zero. There's still going to be people mm -hmm. who always choose that. But I think it provides a policy conversation where we can say, in the long run, we really can get terrorism to be less than it is now. But well, how do you get those things to take root? I mean, that was one of the theories of the Iraq invasion, which proved to be uh, wrong. Correct. That we could yeah. go in and do things to stall a liberal democracy, and the liberal democracy would lead to all sorts of people starting up little businesses, and it would look a lot like Peoria after a while, right. and, and we would American, or at least westernize it. It didn't happen. Is that because it's a theocracy, because it's culture, because it's what? I think it's because we're doing it wrong. Uh, that's my short answer, and I'll expand on that. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I want us to think about a place like Iraq or Afghanistan, a place where for thousands of years the government has been the biggest predator on the block. The government mm -hmm. is the predator, the exploiter of the people. And all the fights. And, ethnic, it's, a and it's a theocracy. And it's a theocracy in many right. cases, yeah. right? So you're not just dealing with, you know, um, it's not like losing in a democratic election where your guy or gal loses and you say, oh, well, maybe next time. Because the political fights are also religious fights. Unless, unless you lost to Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on who you ask, I suppose, right? <laughs> Sorry. So, you know, I think the reason that we're doing it wrong is because, yes, we can identify these dysfunctional political, economic, religious institutions. Mm -hmm. We can see what's wrong with them. But when the government has been the biggest predator on the block, to come in as outsiders and say, hey, we know how to do a good job with right. government. We're going to teach you how to do it, and we're going to impose it from the top down doesn't work. The reason the American experiment worked was because people believed though in those values before we ever had a constitution. In mm -hmm. fact, the constitution was a codification of values already held. So that's what Iraq needs. That's what Afghanistan needs. So it's a hearts and minds campaign. And in my own view, free trade is a great part of that battle. Because when people are given the choice to be free, to have cell phones, to, people choose that. But they have to get access to those kind of choices. Mm -hmm. Have a theory? No. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a longer conversation about how we bring that about. Uh, and what else should we cover on, on Al-Qaeda? This is fascinating. What, what, what question did I ask or did I not ask that I should have? 
I don't know that you didn't. I mean, we could ask a thousand questions, I think. I, I would say an, another issue for me that I really cared about, and from my uh, graduate work, I went to the CIA. So I thought, well, I've been thinking about this for... So you went from grad school into the into CIA? To the CIA, okay. yeah, to yeah. kind of try to yeah. say, I've been doing this intellectually. Let's Let's apply that to the real world. It turns out that's a very hard thing to do, as you can imagine, with any intelligence work. It's very hard to know what's going on. But I think one thing that's understated, I would I would say, is what is the demand for terrorism? We understand the supply. We can understand that, well, there's al-Qaeda, there's ISIS, there are these groups. We know what they do. But I think a more interesting question, and this is me being an economist about it, is supply only exists because there's a demand. So if we really want to stop terrorism, al-Qaeda or ISIS or anything else, we have to understand why people choose it. And I think what underlies that are why are people donating to it? You know, that's kind of a really interesting question that I think we need more work on. Why do some people who would never be a suicide bomber, they would never be a recruit on the ground, but they might write a million-dollar check to fund mm. it. What do they want? What are they fighting against? And what does the world have to look like for that to not happen as often as it does? I think those are the questions in my own research that I want to continue to to pursue because those to me, are going to help us in the policy realm get some tractability and yeah. get some success. Well, I'm looking forward to your answers. Well, uh, I am a... too. I'll keep you posted <laughs> when I get them. You've given me a whole lot of new things to think about. <laughs> <laughs> well, and thank you. This has been extremely interesting. We've been here talking about the moral case for free markets and the path to human flourishing. And more as interesting, we've now turned to Al-Qaeda to figure out why in the world there is a demand for Al-Qaeda. And uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to, to exploring that with you more next time. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, and Sarah. Where can you be found? I can be found at uh, tifwe.org. Okay. And um, that's a great place to see what I'm doing, kind of the books I'm working on. I'm also at George Mason University and at the great. Institute for World Politics. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. Fascinating. Yep. Lovely to be here. Yeah, great. Thank you. For the past 250 years, the world has become wealthier and wealthier. In just the past few decades, we've lifted over a billion people out of poverty. My friend, the free market economist and moral philosopher, Dr. Ann Bradley, believes she knows why. It's that increasingly, the world has become more market-oriented. It's freedom and entrepreneurship that have discovered new life-enhancing products and new ways to solve problems. So, Anne's on a mission. She wants to sit down for a cup of coffee with Bernie Sanders. She wants to explain to him how the world really works. She doesn't want the poor to be poor or the rich to exploit, but believes Bernie's solutions are wrong-headed. I would say, Bernie, you have a great conceit that you can arrange economies and dictate outcomes. You can't. No one can. So listen to Anne about free market economics. Come to think about it, Bernie, this might take two cups. Maybe a pot of coffee. Maybe more. But Bernie, it would be worth it. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. 
earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to amazon.com slash apply. That's amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.